good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square. Your lemon squares taste like ass. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking titties and shrimp. We're talking candy apple martinis. And we're talking Catherine fucking Isabel. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we are talking flesh squelches, as my subtitle so helpfully reminded me at multiple points throughout this film. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was about to ask you where, and then I realized, hmm, it could have come up many, many times in this film. Everyone, we are discussing the Soska sisters, or the Twisted Twinses, American Mary, our next installment in our underseen or underrated series that we're doing um, for, tw- well, this is 2012, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. So we have advanced a year from Scream 4, and here we are uh, with a Canadian entry. It's fantastic, folks. If you're listening on the Patreon, there was also a Canadian film this week, so it's like Canadian films across the board. Honestly, Joe, at this point, I just assume that any film we cover is Canadian, not because you're programming it, but because I just feel like every film mm-hmm. <laughs> has Canadian blood in it. More or less. Yeah. It's We're everywhere. Fine. Well, everywhere. but... This film definitely does, because this is a film that was filmed in Vancouver, which is the mm-hmm. Hollywood version of Canada? Uh, yeah, more or less. Once again, folks, this is where they film all of the CW shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but Toronto, whatever, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Go look at a map trace. Uh, <laughs> no, but uh, I'm really excited to talk about this film, because I feel like there's a lot of stuff going on. So I do mm-hmm. think we might need an outside perspective on this, Joe. All right, everyone. She is the co-director of 2013's independent horror film, The Last Buck Hunt, and you may also read her writing at Drag Central. She's also the co-host of the Paper Street Podcast, a genre film and filmmaking-centric program presented by Paper Street Pictures. Please welcome Becky Sayers. Hello! (laughs) Studio audience, clap. (laughs) Joe normally does that. I did it for a while, and then I stopped, and you know what? Now I'm bringing it back, so thank you for the hint, Becky. Okay. (laughs) I can snap instead, get all classy. Oh, God. How are you doing, Becky? Are you ready to talk American Mary? Oh, yes. I'm ready. I revisited it, and I... I think I have some things to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, because, Joe, um, I, I, yeah, we talked about this. We're doing our series, Underseen and Underrated. What is this underseen or is it underrated? And maybe I should ask Joe since Becky. Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll end with Becky because she'll have things to say. Mm-hmm. I would say that this is underseen. I think to a certain extent it's underrated, but overall, I just think this is a film that's not on a ton of people's radars. And I am going to cue everybody a uh, content warning. There is sexual assault and also body modification in this movie. Yes, there is a lot of that. It's interesting. I remember, I mean, what, I started writing for Bloody around 2015. And I, I remember, I remember people in the horror community talking about it a lot because it, I mean, this kind of is the Soska sisters. Like, I think the general consensus is that it is their best film. Correct. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know a lot of, um, like, if you're not into horror, like, I feel like this might have slipped past you. 
Mm-hmm. And it's extreme, right? So it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea at the best of times. I was going to say it's overseen and overrated, but Wow, <laughs> okay, here we go, here no, we go. It, it may be underseen to a, a wider audience, but I feel like, like, Trace's point, anybody yeah. in the horror genre is probably at least familiar with it. And I do agree that it is by far the Soska's best film. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've I've only seen this and I've seen See No Evil 2. Okay. That movie is not good. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, this is better than that. <laughs> I haven't seen, the only thing I haven't seen of theirs is Vendetta. No. Oh, the Dean Cain movie? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, boy. Which they didn't write, so I think they just yeah. directed. But. Well, uh, Becky, because I mean, uh, obviously we will talk about all of your thoughts and opinions on this film as we move along in the episode, but you seem to have a pretty strong reaction to it. Tell us, what what is your relationship with American Mary? I don't have a particularly good reason for having a strong reaction to it. Other than the, the first time I watched it, I walked away feeling like, wow, that was a great first half of a movie, and then the second <laughs> half felt like a really big budget student film. Okay. And upon revisiting it, I was prepared to change my mind. I was like, actually, this isn't as bad as I remembered. And then that second half kicks in uh, with a very pivotal pivotal scene, which mm. we'll talk about later, yeah. that just totally changes the direction of the film. And again, like just it devolves from there. But there's no real strong personal reason why I dislike the movie. I think it's just disappointing because it starts off strong. Yeah. Whenever a movie right. has that strong first act, second act, you're like, ah, oh, they just can't stick it. And it's mm-hmm. really frustrating. Yeah, especially when you're watching it and you can feel your attitude shifting and you're just thinking like, no, hold on, hold on. You had something. What is happening? Why isn't it working anymore? I'm incl- I mean, I do think the first half is better because I feel like it's... <sighs> It's kind of that thing where it's like a common critique of certain films like Sunshine or whatever. It's like, oh, it starts really interesting and then it devolves into just another slasher movie. Hmm. I love Sunshine. Oh, I do too. <laughs> Me too. It's, it's, it's so good. But, 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 but that last act of the movie is very different than yes. the first two acts. And I'm always reluctant to use the phrase devolves into a slasher because I'm like, okay, but that's inherently saying that, oh, slashers are bad. But I get it. Right. I think in this case, what you're saying, Becky, is that it's not necessarily that it devolves into a slasher. It just devolves into something that's more formulaic and less innovative than what we get in the first half of this film yeah i feel like it sets up potential and then it actually ignores the most interesting parts of the story and falls back on cliches that feel Hmm. very like screenwriting 101 making the whole thing feel like a first draft effectively Hmm. of a script that could have really been worked on and improved to pull out nuance and interesting things about the body mod community i feel like it totally doesn't deliver on the promise of what the film is. Well, that that is, I was actually chatting with Joe beforehand because yeah, part of the, what the Soska sisters had said about this is that, you know, they wanted to destigmatize the body mod community and stuff. And I was like, well, I can see the effort here, but I don't, (laughs) I'm saying this is someone who does like this film. I I do like it quite a bit. I don't love it, but I do like it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I was like, okay, but like, they're not, you're not really doing anything with this community in the movie that I think would aid destigmatizing outside of just putting them in here and like showing some of their, their modifications, you know? Yeah, the representation is there. The interest is there. I think there's a difference in the way that Mary comes to appreciate her clientele and their interests and their valuing of self-expression that, yeah. yeah, we'll talk about during the plot. But I'm not always sure about the film's interest in that. And I agree with you, Becky, that I do think it starts off seeming 
interested in certain avenues, and then the back half of the film seems to lose those. And I get that that's maybe the point, but as an audience member, it it's also hard not to feel like you've been sold a bit of a false bill of goods where... And, and maybe this isn't the film's responsibility, but we go in thinking it's one thing, and then the back half is like, oh, well, we don't really want to do that anymore, so we're going to give you some other stuff. Well, this is something like with the like the Perfection, which we talked about two years ago, where it's kind of a secret rape-revenge film, because you don't know that's what it is going into it, and the rape-revenge right. isn't the focus, at least for the first half of the film. Yeah. And then that is what it becomes. And so I know I said slasher beforehand, but it really ultimately is a rape-revenge film that that's it <laughs> and also a lady mental deterioration film which has actually become very popular so in a oh, way like the this, stylist yeah the the stylist uh there was knocking there was censor so we're kind of having a mini resurgence of these mm -hmm. and and i think some of these films are pulling them off better interestingly enough many of them female directed I mean, I was even going to say, not even in horror, look at Spencer that's out right now. Like, that very much is also a female lady mental right. deterioration film. Mm -hmm. Right. And I watched MFA also. I, oh. was, I don't mm. recommend these two as a double feature because it's a very depressing Oof. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thing mm -hmm. to pair. But actually, Andrew <laughs> had recommended it to me a long time ago. I never watched it. And did you I like, like it? Hey, I, I did. I actually liked it quite a bit. But I was like, hey, I'm going to watch American Mary. I've this they are often compared to each other for mm -hmm. both women going through like a a grad school type of scenario med school mm -hmm. grad school and you know they're both rape revenge stories but MFA handles the subject matter much much more delicately uh, and probably with a bit more care than I'd say American Mary does. It's funny because um, MFA came up a lot when we discussed promising young woman on the Patreon mm -hmm. and I think that I, I think that. I didn't even think to compare it to American Mary, but you are right. It, it does work. This film, maybe I'm wrong in this base, but like, it maybe kind of dips into exploitation a little bit in the second yes. half. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, okay, okay, okay. So, I mean, we're, we're, we're tiptoeing around a lot of stuff. So, let, let's get some production out of the way and, um, you know, some other uh, elephants in the rooms uh, mm -hmm. before we talk about the plot and we can really dig into the meat of this movie. So, as I said, this was shot in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. The one thing that I do love is that there were no visual effects. And by that, I mean no CGI. Um, all effects are either practical or Mary's patients are members of the real-life body modification community. They did write the role of Mary specifically for Catherine Isabel. So, I mean, had she not said yes, I don't know what would have happened here. But um... <laughs> We would have gone with Emily Perkins. Well, it's really... <laughs> It's funny, though, because I was like, I wonder how they knew. I mean, I'm sure they knew Catherine Isabel from Ginger Snaps, but I didn't realize this. So the Soska sisters and Catherine Isabel all have acting roles in mm -hmm. 2001's Josie and the Pussycats. They sure oh. do. They're groupies. <laughs> all of them? <laughs> well, I don't I don't know if they're in this. I'm sure the sisters are in the same scene, but I don't know if they're in the same scene with Catherine Isabel. But I was like, I wonder if that's how they met. <laughs> I believe so. Yeah. I, I can't remember seeing the Soska sisters when I saw Josie and the Pussycats. I wasn't yeah. really aware of who they were. But I mean, Catherine Isabel has a, a reasonably prominent role as a mean girl who doesn't like <gasps> Josie. And yes. then she becomes a groupie after Josie becomes famous. Yeah, you're right. You're 100% right. That is coming back to me. So yeah, they wrote the script while they were trying to sell their film Dead Hooker in a trunk, and it mirrors some of the experiences that they had in the film industry, such as meeting sleazy people that seem initially reputable. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen Dead Hooker in a trunk, but Becky, it sounds like you have. Do you yeah. have fonder thoughts on that film? 
No. (laughs) (laughs) That one's a straight up exploitation film. Yeah, I I will say that I really wanted to love that movie because I was a young filmmaker at the time. I was, I probably was just going into film school around the time that came out. And I was really Mm -hmm. inspired by the story. They sounded like two badass ladies. They did their own stunts. They were inspired by a lot of Robert Rodriguez. Mm -hmm. And Tarantino, right? And Tarantino, yes. And anybody that went to film school, you know, in the 2000s knows like the Rodriguez film schools that, you know, a little like film school tutorials that were on the DVD special features. Oh gosh, right. (laughs) So we all grew up on that, right? Yeah. And so we had this like I had a sense of like kinship almost, even though I didn't know them. I was like, oh, that they sound like me. I can, you know, visualize myself in them. So I was yeah. really rooting for Dead Hooker in a Trunk to be awesome. And then I watched it and I was like, this isn't great, but I can see what they were trying to do. There were some mm-hmm. cool visuals in it. And so I was like, eh, I-, I will follow their career. I'm-, I'm interested to see what they do next, but I can't say that I really liked the film. Have you, have you ever met them? Have either one of y'all met these these girls? I haven't. I've traveled in circles that have spoken with them. Like Valeska did an interview with them for one of Grim Journal's issues. And they're relatively well known in Canada because you don't get a lot of prominent genre female filmmakers. Yeah, and I've been to cons where they were there at the same time. So I've seen them and heard the crowd reactions around them. Yeah, I, I met them. They did Texas Frightmare in, uh, weekend, which is a convention here in Dallas. And it was it was when they were like finishing up See No Evil 2. And I got to talk to them. They were, I mean, they're very charismatic. They're very mm-hmm. endearing. Like, you can see, like, I mean, like they are very personable people, at least at the time. They were really selling me hard on See No Evil 2, which is why <laughs> I maybe had it built up a little bit too much in my mind I was like oh like I mean it's like one of those things where it's like okay you're taking a movie from 2006 or whatever that was not a good movie that was a critical and commercial flop and you're making this direct-to-video sequel with Catherine Isabel and Danielle Harris mm-hmm. and it's like okay like no one's gonna expect that to be good but there could be a surprise found in there especially right. with these two women at the helm it's not it's very boring and slow but um <laughs> I thought the first one was better Yes, which is saying it, something. It had, it had more fun kills in it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't really remember much from See No Evil 2. No, I don't know. Unfortunately. But, um, okay, so well, maybe, because hey, I only have really, really some reception left. So let's get this elephant out of the room, everyone. Um, The Soska sisters do have a bit of a dark cloud looming over them um, in the past couple years. And it was, oh, I, God, we didn't even mention Rabbit, but it was mm-hmm. around the release of their remake mm-hmm. of David Cronenberg's Rabbit back in 2019. So I, I don't want to spend too much time on this because we're, we're kind of in this whole, like, you know, separate the art from the artist type thing. But just so we can all be caught up to speed, um, after sharing and promoting images of Rabbit um, on social media, and of course it features practical gore by Masters FX, the Soska sisters found themselves suspended from Twitter. And they took issue because they were like, okay, like we're the first directors to remake a Cronenberg film. And of course, they're two women. Mm-hmm. And the first director to get suspended from Twitter for promoting their film with an image from the film, which is, of course, I mean, granted, it is a gory shot, but it's like they had a, other examples that were like, oh, you weren't doing this to this big studio film, but you're doing this to this like small, tiny grassroots film. 
Mm -hmm. And it should be noted that the image had already been shared by Fangoria as well as Rumorg, so it made no sense for them specifically to be targeted as the directors. Correct. And this is also, like, they had just dropped the trailer for the film, so they couldn't even promote it there. So they they really viewed it as an attack on them and the film, like, specifically. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it's not something we're really going to know, because, uh, so they filed an appeal seven days after their suspension, and then things kind of only got worse. And J Jen Soska did an interview with Morbidly Beautiful magazine where she was like, oh, they said it was our Fright Fest banner, but if this was a Blumhouse or a studio film, they wouldn't have done it. Like, It Chapter 2 had a featured Twitter story hailing the gruesome new trailer, and that was fine to put on. Of course, the difference is that there wasn't blood in that image, but <laughs> there you go. <laughs> this is kind of when things start to tailspin. So in an effort to get reinstated, they, um, Jen and Sylvia, who are champions of female autonomy and anti-pedophile advocates for life, began allying themselves with the alt-right. And that's kind of... Yeah. Let's asterisk that. So, of course, I mean, we all know what the alt-right is, but the person that was linked with them was, oh my god, Jack Posobiec. And I hope I'm saying that right. I mean, I hope you're not, because he's a giant piece of shit. Well... <laughs> So that's the thing. I, I I missed. I mean, I knew what Pizzagate. I'm sorry. I had heard the term Pizzagate. I didn't know what it was because I honestly thought it was a gaming thing. But that was Gamergate. So all these gates, I I really <laughs> flew over my head. <laughs> but Posobiec tweeted out a video from One American News covering the sisters' suspension, and they responded by thanking him on Instagram. But yes, what Posobiec had done was he was the one who promoted Pizzagate. He was the one who helped get James Gunn fired by by Marvel for digging up his old offensive tweets he's hugely anti-semitic as well yes i mean if you if you go to the wikipedia page for alt-right he pretty much is that definition so the issue was though he was showing support for them and they were thanking him and people were like um yeah maybe not the best person to like plead your case they repeatedly and publicly thanked him under the guise of free speech and tackling censorship. But then, like, he was kind of using this to, like, support his alt-right cause. I mean, it's a yeah. big to-do. That's the bulk of it. There's also other stuff. There's some hearsay about, you know, maybe the Sister Sisters stole a screenplay from someone and that became a big to-do. And they were also kind of accused of cyberbullying. Mm -hmm. As I said at the top of the episode, like, there is so much information, all this stuff that is enough for a podcast episode in and of itself. I don't really have a lot. I mean, I've already been talking about it. So unless you want to comment on this and how it, and whether or not it impacted your viewing of this film on a rewatch. I just want, I thought we should maybe get it out there so people are aware that we know <laughs> about what, what people say about the Soskas. Yeah, I'll take a first stab at this. As a Canadian genre enthusiast, this has been definitely a disappointing saga. And I've ended up having to divorce like who they are as like independent horror film champions and like the things that they do for yes they're they're anti-pedophile anti kind of child grooming and like i know that they're they're feminist icons for a lot of mm -hmm. women and just people who celebrate women in horror and it's i think that's what makes it so hard is that they have been embroiled in these kinds of things where it seems like if you want to celebrate some of their positives you then have to acknowledge the things that they become embroiled in and I guess I would just always want people to know, you know, hey, you you can like American Mary, you can like Rabbit, you can like these things, but it's, I think we just need to be careful. Like you said, oh, maybe we need to put an asterisk or acknowledge the elephant in the room. And I, when I see people saying like, oh, they're so great and, you know, they're feminist icons, I'm like, yeah, but 
they've also gotten into bed with some really fucking shitty people. And it's, I don't know if I can separate the art from the artist in this regard, because too often, I just think, oh, well, I know a lot of my Jewish friends would probably not support a filmmaker who is doing really anti Jewish, like anti Semitic sentiment. Yeah, I, I mean, I can, I guess, relate in this similar way to Joe where similar it's disappointing it you know as women filmmakers we don't have a ton of genre filmmakers that are active and present to look up to mm-hmm. uh, well there's more and more now there's there's, yeah, there's plenty out there there's a lot out there <laughs> but, but but in 2012 and 2013 that wasn't always the case no no and they certainly weren't getting films that were released theatrically or at least getting did was American Mary released theatrically I thought it was it, very very like, very limited very limited <laughs> I don't even have box office numbers for it but that small yeah uh but i mean at least they had you know movies with recognizable casts things Mm -hmm. that were making waves even if small waves in the relatively minor indie horror genre but Mm -hmm. yeah so it was really disappointing when it turned out they started aligning with the wrong people and had many opportunities to come out and say oops yeah. Didn't know or And that's the thing is they've they've never really apologized for the behavior. They always just cry yeah. censorship. And it's like it's one thing if you said, Okay, we were obviously targeted as women, we were obviously targeted because we're independent filmmakers, which is absolutely true. I do firmly believe that they were unfairly targeted. Right. But then the steps they went to quote unquote get the publicity train back on the rails is like, well, no, you you did bad shit, and then you have always just repeatedly gone back to the same tagline of, oh, well, we were censored. We were the, the agree parties. And it's like, uh, no, ladies, no. They doubled down, and I think that was the issue. Like, I mean, yeah. I empathize with them, and maybe they didn't know who, uh, who Posobiec was, whatever. Like, that being said, that being said, when they were called out for it, yeah, like you said, instead of apologizing, they just doubled down. And so mm-hmm. I'll kind of close it out with this. But like, continuing this interview with Morbidly Beautiful, what Jen Soska had said was, and because she turned it off, like, she turned it around onto all journalists <laughs> and goes, there is so little journalistic integrity or integrity in general left in the media. It's either this side or that side. And they're both screaming like maniacs. The scariest thing is there is encouragement to scream down your opponent or punch a not who are we calling Nazis? And of course, this is referencing like people calling the alt-right Nazis. Mm-hmm. So this reads as a, oh, don't call them Nazis. They're not like that. Like that, that's the mm-hmm. issue. Like she, yeah. she, they're switching around defending themselves by also defending this asshat. And that yeah. I think was the big mistake that they made. Yeah, they're all sidesing, and it's like a really shitty look. And even like that interview, like if you look at the time period when this is all happening, this is when the rise of Nazism was making a huge fucking comeback for their. So for them yeah. to contribute to that and be like, mm, well, really, we should be blaming journalists. You're like, oh my god, just no fucking stop. I mean, again, we yeah, we could have moral quandaries about this, whatever, but like, I, out the window, elephant's been addressed. Let's go back to this movie. So, yeah, um, American Mary premiered at the London Fright Fest Film Festival on August 27th, 2012. So that is why it is considered a 2012 film. Um, I really, I really hate it when mm-hmm. films premiere at a festival one year and don't get released for like until the next year because it really fucks with these release dates. But <laughs> yeah. We're being selective. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was released on VOD on May 16th, 2013, but did really, but did receive a limited theatrical release about two weeks later on May 31st. So, I mean, this is probably like a theater in LA that screened it or something. Yeah, I know 
I think everyone I know saw this on DVD or like yeah. VOD. It received generally mixed reviews, but I do think out of all their films, it is the one with the most positive reception. Of course, people praise Isabel's performance and the film's use of black comedy, but they did criticize the abrupt ending or as some, maybe they would agree with Becky, the last half in general. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we're looking at a 61% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 5.9 out of 10 and then a 6.6 out of 10 on Letterboxd. So... I do think this is something that uh, where the fan base has been more vocal about their affinity for it than the critics were. But nevertheless, yeah. I think in like critic circles, like it, it, this film was lauded generally. But yeah, I mean that's that's it. <laughs> that's what we got. It's a small film. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Okay, well, to kick off the plot synopsis, I'm just going to quickly give credit to former guest Anya Stanley for her piece, A Woman's Touch, The Trinity of the Body in American Mary, and that's in Vogue Visage. All right, let's kick it up. So we begin with an instrumental rendition of Ave Maria. Folks, get used to it. You will hear it a couple times. (laughs) And this is playing as med student Mary Mason, played by Catherine Isabel, is suturing what is eventually revealed to be a turkey. I thought it was a chicken, too, when they were doing it. So um, <laughs> I know they wanted you to think that it was a human body, but I was like, that's a chicken. But no, it, was, it, has it was the a- bumpy skin. That's very clearly... <laughs> Not a human. <laughs> um, I will say though that I, I don't. I didn't really read this in a lot of reviews for the film, but I got a lot of hostile vibes from this movie. Was it the black aprons? The black yeah. aprons. Uh, they also do credit Eli Roth as a bit of an inspiration. Oh lord. Um, <laughs> yeah, another problematic figure. Yeah. Well, yeah. Wasn't the film dedicated to him? Oh yeah, no. It says in the credits you dedicated the film to Eli Roth. So. Yes. Okay. All right. I mean, there, I mean, I think you can see it too in some of the surgery scenes here. I mean, not as explicit mm-hmm. because they're working with a much smaller budget than what Roth had to work on um, in Hostel, but just in the like the production design, I see. I feel like I see a lot of the Hostel torture rooms here. Yeah, that was kind of one of the things I took away from this most recent rewatch. That the film feels like a really great hodgepodge of a bunch of other films. Like they're on record as praising Tarantino and Rodriguez for being that kind of like new wave of directors who do a lot of pastiche with like their favorite films. And I feel like you can look at this particular film, American Mary, as their response to that in some ways. Yeah. Okay. I mean, unfortunately, we had a hostile part two like five years earlier, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, because that movie's awesome. But <laughs> right. Previous episode, go back and listen. So in class, Mary irks Dr. Grant, who is played by David Lovegren, when her phone goes off. I'm sorry, Dr. Alan Grant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's uh, that's a choice. Was, was that a wink, wink, nod, nod? It that- has to be, right? <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> There's no Jurassic Park vibes anywhere else in the film. <laughs> I will say, and I, I wanted to like instinctively be like, no teacher talks like this in their class. Ooh, but then I was like, well, yeah, I'm, well. Uh, I'm sure it happens. I'm sure <laughs> this guy's a dick. He is. He is awful. Oh, he's, he is. Yeah, he's completely one dimensional as mm-hmm. like asshole professor. He doesn't yeah. do anything else but berate her and and rape her. Rape her. <laughs> yes. Yes. Correct. Exactly. But really, we're we're setting the precedent for all men in this movie. Like, we will not meet a good man, except for, I would argue, Lance the Henchman. 
Um, yeah. Would we, wait, uh, maybe, okay, maybe I'm forgetting something. Will we not call Billy a good guy? Oh my god, Trace, you have got to be kidding me right <laughs> now. <laughs> I mean, uh, he likes her. <laughs> he murders he, for her. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, I, yeah. It's funny, I was thinking about this. It's like, are we supposed to be empathizing with this guy? Like, I think so, but it's not, no. He's awful. He's just as skeezy and mm-hmm. terrible as all the guys at the sex party, the the you know, surgeons and stuff like he's yeah, he just does it under the auspices of oh, well, I work at a sex club. And as a result, it's my purview like Trace, she (laughs) literally walks in on him forcing one of his dancers to give him head. Okay, okay. Y'all are gonna be giving me I I didn't I know he has his hand on her head, but I didn't read that as forcing her. But clearly, he's in I a position of authority. He's the boss. This is it's basically a, a redo with showgirls. Right? <laughs> no, I don't think it's a job. Isn't that one of the girls that already works for him? I it's we've never seen unfair. her before. She's one okay. of the new girls. I guess. I mean, I, I know we've talked about head pushers on this podcast before, but I was just like, well, I mean, if I'm like on my knees sucking a guy's dick, then like, I mean, I, they might have their ha- hand on my head. But okay, I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna like switch my slide. <laughs> Sorry, switch my side. <laughs> yes, y'all are right. <laughs> it's an abuse of power. And just, I think his intentions to her are always, like, super icky to me. Like, he wants to come off as a nice guy, which is why at the end of the film, he's like, oh, let's leave this down and go to L.A. And you're just like, dude, your visions are of a her stripping for you and pouring blood down her chest. Come on, well, man. I, I think for, okay, I, I realize the mental gymnastics I am doing right now. <laughs> okay. But, no, because for me... I, what I viewed was his intentions for Mary were always from a place of like, I like you. Like he meant well, he was doing things to help her. No, he's being possessive. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Okay. You know what? Fuck it. Listeners stop yelling at me. I get it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I can get the idea that like, Oh, there's a deluded man who believes he's in love with a woman and wants to do everything for her. But like, they literally never have that conversation. He just always acts like she is his girlfriend. And that's it key. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I think it's more like he sees her as like this forbidden object that he can't have Mm -hmm. that wants to possess her. And that was my read on it because he's this awful human who believes he control (laughs) can control women. Yes. And, you know, exhibit power over them. And I think that's one of my biggest issues with this film is that it's very confused as like a a feminist film Mm -hmm. in that sense. And that it does, I feel like intentionally try and portray Billy in this almost empathetic way. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't know because like what you're picking up on Trace, I think, is because of the way the, the filmmakers, Jen and right. Sylvia Soska, like shot it, wrote it, it's very confusing. And I think at that time, especially when people were even less articulate and attuned to like rape culture. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people just dismiss that as like, oh, he's he's kind of this this guy that wants what's best for her and he'll do anything for her. And she just kind of ignores him and brushes him off. And that, she's mean for that. <clears throat> right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, and we see a lot of those same characteristics in Dr. Grant, right? Because he very much has a certain vibe about him. Like, Trace, you said, oh, is anybody actually this mean? Sadly, yes. But also... Mm-hmm. He always presents as though he's do it he's doing it under the guise of kindness, right? Like he just doesn't want her to fail. He sees so much potential in her. And it's like, oh, 
no, that's gaslighting. Like, you're deliberately saying two different things to this girl, and it's very confusing. I mean, this is a guy that says, I have enough useless twats in my class. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But no, I'll even pull it because my husband likes to say I'm very naive when it comes to reading people's intentions or whatever. Because, yes, obviously Grant is a villain here because he is outwardly mean. He is outwardly evil. Mm -hmm. Billy is inwardly evil, like presenting nice presenting good when he right. his his motives may and may, maybe his intentions like in his mind they're good but as you said becky from a place of possession i think it's also easier to swallow Ooh, choice of words um <laughs> because antonio cupo the the actor who plays billy barker is young and attractive like he he has a certain swagger about him whereas dr grant is very like he's literally introduced standing at the front of a class you're just like oh you're an authority figure and then he's treating her this way and you know it's inappropriate from the get-go maybe that could have been the point is that they're portraying they're kind of like foils of each other where they're two men who abuse power but it looks very different yeah in Mm. each situation i want to believe that was intentional but I don't really get that vibe from watching the film. I feel like that's like us reading <laughs> into it. But we have to. And Joe, like yeah. you said, like they don't have the conversation because, yeah, there is no conversation here. And that's maybe where the critiques of the abrupt ending come into play because, yeah, there's no room to have that conversation. But it also feels like there's a couple of things where the change is so immediate. It feels like someone flicking a light switch where mm. we're doing one thing and then all of a sudden, oh, OK, no, we're doing something completely different. Characters are acting completely differently. Yeah. Yeah. But we're not there yet. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I feel like Mary, Catherine Isabel's performance of her is like, she makes the movie watchable to me. Oh my god, yeah. If it was anybody else, I don't know. Well, there's a lot of talented um, actors out there, I'm sure, could do great. But you can tell it was kind of written for her and her kind of like deadpan humor. Mm -hmm. And she's very likable, at least for the first half of the film, especially. (laughs) But everyone, and that I think just makes it a stronger contrast because i feel like everyone else around her is just not as well written yeah and there's some weak acting for a lot of the bit parts so everyone else just kind of shrinks in comparison and they don't feel like real people mary's the only character that feels real to me and maybe billy but you mean detective delore which um joe you will not know this but delore does mean pain in spanish so he's literally detective pain (laughs) Uh, pain in our ass right (laughs) it feels like a hellraiser movie where you're just like oh we need to have a compulsory cop in this movie yeah it doesn't pay off at all so Uh, i have thoughts we'll get there so dr grant is basically doing this like he's chastising her both publicly as well as personally so he embarrasses her in front of the class and then afterwards he takes her aside privately and he's like no i'm just really doing this because i think you could be so great Uh." (laughs) and then in the parking garage after class she gets a phone call about her student loans and she is dangerously like fiscally (laughs) not on solid ground and he overhears the whole conversation like it's so gross he's just lingering getting into his car so he can overhear her business i will say i was surprised that the amount she needed to pay to like be in good standing again was and i'm putting quotes around the word only only 364 dollars for being three months behind her payments i think that was her phone bill that it was weird Uh because she gets the the thing that says hey your student 
like she misses a call from the student loan office. Mm-hmm. But then the person she's on the phone with, I thought was actually the phone company because they rest- but then she's using the phone. They said something about restoring her service. It's very much, I think, meant to be, it, it's just, oh, the bills are piling up in all yes. regards. But I took it to be the phone company was calling about her home phone because in 2012, we still oh, had landlines. The home <laughs> phone. Oh, my gosh. You're probably right. <laughs> yeah. You've got a cell phone. Cut that landline. You're good. <laughs> okay, cool. No, but her Nana uses the landline. Yes, this is the important thing. So speaking of Nana from Budapest, Mary is chatting with her as she is also... I do enjoy... I think a lot of the comedy bits do work for me, particularly early on, where Nana is talking to her about, like, basically, don't become a whore, darling. And she's online looking at, how do I make money fast? Oh, here's a strip club. It says that I can just basically walk in and get a job and make a lot of money quickly. Isabel has a lot of facial tics here, too. I mean, the moment when she first sees Ruby Real Girl, and she's like, could you excuse me for one second? Like, again, there's there's an energy and a comedy there that, yes, as soon as she is raped, that is lost. And I... I, I Right. get the intention there but as you said joe there's not a gradual turn here like she just becomes a completely different character which again i get the intent behind that and for me that's actually not even where the switch really happens like i think that that's the first that's the switch from the rape into the revenge but i think there's actually more dramatic changes that happen after that too Okay. So she ends up going to this club. I took it down as Bourbon, but is there a longer name for it? It's like Bourbon and... Bourbon and Bush. (laughs) One of those. It's something ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah, so this is run by, in my notes I wrote, Attractive Grosso Billy Barker, who is played by Antonio (laughs) Cupo, and he has no previous credits to this film. None at all, Trace. Well, um, you say that, Joe, but and I, I think it's been a little too long since we've had Lizzie McGuire come back into oh, this, but Jesus he is credited as a Christ. model in the Lizzie McGuire movie. <laughs> Paolo. Paolo Isabella. Sing to me, Paolo. <laughs> Maybe he should have been called Paolo, is what oh, I'm saying. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, playing the same character. His modeling career didn't work out, and now mm-hmm. he runs a strip club. Yeah, he had to come back to Vancouver, a.k.a. Seattle, and uh, he opened a strip club. So what you're saying is American Mary is a low-key sequel to, to the Lizzie McGuire, McGuire movie? Yes. <laughs> yes. Becky, this is what you don't understand. Everything tracks back to Canada for Trace, and somehow everything tracks back to the Lizzie McGuire movie for me. It makes no <laughs> sense. Kevin Bacon would be amazed. What, Becky, have you seen the Lizzie McGuire movie? No. Okay, well, that's a shame. You should really get on that. But one day, <laughs> I, will I, get Joe, I, I will get Joe to watch it. <laughs> so in case you didn't think that Billy was a piece of shit, one of his first lines is he asks her, Catherine Isabel, who is clearly in fantastic shape and model gorgeous, <laughs> he asks her, you're not fat under there, are you? Oh, it's just a ploy to get her to take off her jacket. It, but she walks too clunkily. She needs to walk sexier. Yes, her walk and her massage skills need work. The massage skills. That was just... Honestly, this was showgirls like, you know, Mm. first week I get you used to the money, second week you give me a blowjob. In this strip club, it's like there's no 
it's very uh we can't afford extras yeah there's nobody there i find it really funny like how much are they paying these women can they afford it like there's barely anybody there so it's like they have all these side hustles and other things that they're Mm -hmm. doing it's like a front i guess i mean this is a pretty seedy looking strip club and i i mean i i don't frequent strip clubs very often but like i have i have been to some (laughs) specifically new orleans that um are very desolate (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. I they're mean, very sad. I've seen Desolate, but even in those, there's still more than one client sitting in perverts row. Like, this is a two-story <laughs> establishment with multiple back rooms. Right. I just don't think they could keep the lights on. I kept wondering this when I should be watching the movie. I kept trying to figure out, like, the economics behind their business model, and it just, something wasn't adding yeah. up. Yeah. Well, I think you nailed it, Becky, when you said, oh, it's a front, because it reminded yes. me of, like, the shawarma place that used to be near my <laughs> old house, where, like, it was never open, and yet it stayed in business for, like, three consecutive years, and I was like, <laughs> oh, that's not a shawarma uh-huh. place. Like, that is a front for drugs, for sure. Well, I mean, it makes sense, right? Because they're into shady stuff, which yeah. she discovers on her first interview day, right? Oh, yes. my God. <laughs> Look at you queuing him. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sorry, I can't, I can't turn off the podcaster. <laughs> I love it. It makes my job easier. Yeah, because we suddenly have the entrance of Henchman Lance, who's played by Twan Holiday, and he comes in, and Mary suddenly has this financial opportunity that she just cannot say no to. It's uh, heal this man, and you will instantly earn five thousand dollars in cash heal this man like she has magic powers well okay it's like basically don't let this man die slash patch up his eye yeah yeah and, like it looked like he had something going on like a split lip and like i want to know what happened i did too but the film does not care we are moving on <laughs> no because this is this is all painting in kind of like shallow waters right it's just yeah. oh you need to know that this strip club is a front for mob drama or billy is up to no good and then cool she's yeah. in with unsavory characters let's get her home into the shower so she can cry oh but yes. the 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 shower cry tm like <laughs> Yes. I thought I was watching Jessica Biel and Blade Trinity. Um, but I, I do, like, she's afraid, right? Like, she's literally sleeping with a bat because she's afraid mm-hmm. that these people are going to come get her. Yeah. Which I do like because if you, I mean, really, if you think about it, the trajectory of this film is one day she's an unassuming med student who's literally just trying to pay the bills. And the next she's doing like mob patch up works and sleeping with the lights on in a baseball bat. That would be a terrifying progression. Agreed. And I like, and this is where as on the rewatch, I was like, maybe I like this movie now Mm because I think it's, it's a good setup and I believe it, you know, it's like, it's very believable Mm. and uh, she sells it really well. And the fact that she doesn't know a lot about it actually, and the viewer doesn't as well kind of works because Mm. it's like a very need to know, like, you don't need to know why this guy's on the table. You just know it's not a good situation and these are not good people. And that works for her because she's like, shh should I be doing this? I'm (laughs) getting the money, but I feel really shitty about it. (laughs) Yeah. And Catherine Isabel is so good at selling the, I know I shouldn't do this, but the money is always so good, right? Like you can see it in her eyes, like the dollar signs. Oh, well, if I had 5k, 
that would solve a lot of problems. So in the morning, she gets a call from Beatrice Johnson, who is played by Tristan Risk, and uh, she refuses to take the call because she's like, I don't know how you got this number, and uh, I don't want to be involved with whatever is happening. And almost immediately, she also learns that her more socially acceptable waitressing gig has fallen through. That was kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, the timing. Rough. Well, no, it's like her boss, her her manager at the restaurant calls her like, oh, yeah, I haven't paid the rent in a while. So um, we're closed. I'm like, mm-hmm. I mean, look. Everyone in this movie is poor. Well, here's the thing. Working at a strip club is obviously going to get you more money than working at a table. Unless you're working at a really high-end restaurant. And even then, like, yeah. you're probably yeah. going to get more money stripping. So I applaud her. But that being said, it's not like there were no other restaurants she can get a job at. I mean, the market in Seattle in 2012, maybe it was really tough. It rains a lot. I don't know. I was there in 2012. <laughs> <laughs> in Seattle. <laughs> was it easy to get a job? <laughs> Uh, well, I, I moved from California and then back up to Seattle in like 2011, I think. Mm. And I got a job. There you <laughs> go. <laughs> Becky's like, uh, I could have done it. it and it I wasn't even me. in fucking med school. What's this bitch's excuse? It was the time, though. The economy had, you know, the, the big crash in 2007. Yeah. Mm. So for years after that, you know, everything was depressed and jobs were harder yeah. to find. And that was a difficult time to be a less qualified applicant that you know you don't have a degree or you're in the process of getting a degree so mm-hmm. yeah I, I mean i kind of i kind of buy it i just find like from a screenwriting perspective the timing of all of it is very convenient oh sure yeah <laughs> but uh but I, I buy that you know like she didn't seem to have a another option that was readily available and she already wasn't able to pay her bills mm-hmm. at her current job right so even if yeah. she found a new job that paid it wouldn't have been enough Mm -hmm. It wouldn't have been enough, yeah. Yeah. So this actually reminds me of some of the thrillers from the 90s, like the Sandra Bullock film The Net or the Will Smith, Gene Hackman film Enemy of the State, where it's almost regular people who somehow find themselves falling into these really desperate and deplorable situations. And it's often, you know, driven by either money or sex. And I mean, in a way, the setup also bridges into film noir territory, which I think the film sort of does like I, I get a little bit of the film noir intrigue and then it moves into exploitation so like again that's why i feel like this is such a pastiche of different genres i never would have really would have thought of film noir but now that you mention it i can totally see that and even like her apartment feels like a warehouse mm-hmm. yeah yeah it feels like something that like a down on his luck detective from a film noir film would be like drinking whiskey and, you know, yeah. talking about his ex-wife or whatever. I mean, I know it's a fool's errand to be like, okay, well, like, what, would you have liked the movie better if this happened, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But like, if we, I don't, I don't know, leave the rape in or not, whatever. But like, if it maybe became more of her investigating like the inner crime workings of the strip club and what they were doing there. I mean, that's more of like a Cinemax after dark kind of thing. Yeah, that's true. I will say, Becky, to to build on your vibe from this space, though, to me, this is giving heavy David Cronenberg homage because it's very similar to Max's boat barge. It's very similar to the warehouse in The Fly and that kind of stuff. She wears a red surgeon's outfit at one point. I was like, dead ringers! Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, no, this this is their audition to get Rabbit because they literally reproduce the exact same outfit and scene in Rabbit. Oh, shit. I never even thought about that until this moment. (laughs) But it's so (laughs) obvious now. 
Okay, so speaking of the the sort of film noirish aspects, we do have a woman, uh, a very voluptuous woman, run into the apartment at this point, and this is Beatrice in the flesh. She looks like a live Betty Boop, and she has come to offer multitudes of money in different iterations. So two hundred dollars to hear her out, ten thousand to do an unconventional cosmetic operation for a friend, and two thousand dollars just for showing up. I read this, so I I I know that this woman um, that that Risk modeled her voice after Ellen Green from um, Little Shop of Horrors. But I will tell you right now, oh. the first time I saw this movie, I thought this was Ellen Green. <laughs> really? <laughs> like, okay. She nails that vocal inflection. Perfect. I I actually really enjoy this performance. I think Beatrice is charming in a disarming way. Like you you think. And, and maybe this is where we can start to have a tentative discussion about body modification. Mm-hmm. We'll have a more thorough conversation later. But, you know, when you see her, the immediate reaction is, this is uncanny. Something isn't quite right. What has happened to this woman? And then you have to start to realize, oh, she has done this to herself. This is what she wants to do. This is an expression of who she is. Yeah, I I think the performance is great. And I actually think the character is decent. Mm-hmm. I just find her hard to listen to and difficult <laughs> to look at. Oh my god. I know that's mean. <laughs> no, I But it's just it's like uncomfortable almost and and you know maybe that says more about me than anything else, but I understand that's what she's chosen to look like. But right. it's just like that uncanniness of like you don't look She doesn't like look like a human, a human, right? She starts to look almost <laughs> well, in this case more like a cartoon. Exactly. Well, and I do wonder. I mean, I, I know that that the Soskas wanted to. They were they were obviously intentionally doing body mod, but it could really apply to anyone because. And I, I'm trying to find like a mm-hmm. nice way to say this. So the Soskas, you know, they look like you know you're kind of like gothy horror girls, right? right? So I'm sure that they grew up in a place where it was like, oh, like you look like this, therefore you must be a certain type of person. So I think that mm-hmm. really, well, I mean, granted, I don't know the extent to which they have done body mods, if anything at all, but I do think there are parallels here between probably their personal lives and the story they're trying to tell about this community. Oh, sure. Because really the the film is very much interested in bodies. Like I'm going to encourage folks read Anya's piece because it's really about how this film is interested in interrogating bodies and using that to frame its narrative so it's not just about the body mods but also like how Catherine isabel changes when she undergoes the rape and then she like becomes a physically different person who thinks and acts differently and so on so i think it it all plays into what the soskas are trying to do whether or not it always works is sort of in the eye of the beholder but I, I am with you, Becky. I mean, I, I get it. It's not that I don't want to look at her, but I mean, it's a thing where it's like, if I saw Beatrice walking down the street one day, like right. just casually, like, yes, like you, I would I would be drawn to her because I'm like, yeah, that is something that is not quote unquote normal or mm-hmm. maybe even natural. Well, I mean, it's, it's not, it's literally not natural because it's, it's modified, yeah. but, <laughs> but um yeah, it's, it's something where I respect a person's like, decision to do whatever they want with their body. I mean, that's where the autonomy comes in. But at the same time, it's also like, it's it's not a culture I understand. Yeah, totally. And I think this is where the film is most interesting to me, mm-hmm. is this whole concept of body modification being an extension of, you know, not just self-expression, but like the ability to help with folks that don't feel comfortable in their own skin. Yeah, right. And don't feel like their outward appearance reflects their identity. I think 
Beatrice herself says something almost exactly like that in the film uh, when she's talking about her friend. Yeah. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there to explore, and that's where I want more of that and more of those characters and to learn more about people who have made these choices. Well, because it's like they start having the conversation, but then they don't follow through with it. Yeah, because we're following ultimately the character who performs the surgeries, but doesn't actually have an active interest in them. Like, if anything, Mary's arc is that she comes to appreciate this, but she doesn't become more invested in the community. She becomes, I think, obsessed with performing the surgeries and escalating yeah. the the nature of them right like she's it's attracted to the risk mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah i think it's more like she's playing god yeah playing god being really good at what she does and wanting to do the things that nobody else can do or people that other people are afraid to do mm-hmm. and so it feels like she's more utilizing these people for uh, like almost exploiting them in a way because she never you don't really see her journey of learning to accept them it just sort of like happens and i read it more as oh she's going from step a to step b to step c just to get where she needs to go or wants to go financially but that's or, where that's where your cronenbergian yeah. aspects come in though right because yeah mm-hmm. mad scientist wants to play god but mm-hmm. the problem is because it's also doing a rape revenge film it's just yeah. it's doing too much in that second half to be like oh look yeah as you said you're ditching the important stuff to do like kill all the men well, yeah, it, it's shifting, it's reshifting its narrative interests, right? Like, it's yeah. starting with this intriguing descent into a marginalized or kind of like side culture. And mm-hmm. and I think the problem is, is that because that's all new to so many of us, we're fascinated by it. And we don't quite understand it, but we're drawn to it like we've been talking about. And so we really want to see that storyline continue, but then the rape happens and it shifts to become more about her personal journey to, you know, she's still involved in that world, but it's becoming less about that. It's like she, as you're saying, Becky, she's using these people to process her own grief and trauma instead of healing. Maybe that's being like very reductive and simplistic, but... I don't even read it as her using the people to process her grief. I see it as using to further her own sense of, I guess, and and maybe it's the same thing, but just different, like, her own sense of self-worth. Like, she's using this to feel powerful, to feel, I don't know, like, to feel like she is capable and and can, can be powerful against... She's trying to find it again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I, I think in some ways it's ignoring a lot of, like, she doesn't actually process the trauma and the grief in a mm-hmm. healthy way. Instead, she kind of goes... She becomes a murderess. Yeah, she be kind of takes on that, that, that role of power and, like, lording power over people, right? Yeah. As, mm-hmm. as a way to get over it instead of... Um, get over it. That's not the right way to say it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let, me, let me rephrase that. She instead uses that power dynamic to kind of do almost like a role reversal, right, for her rape uh, instead of actually processing the trauma and the grief. Right. I wonder if this is why we're also drawing in some of those comparisons to, like, Ross's work, right? Because that's part of the trajectory of, of Hostel, right, is these kids who think that they're in power, and then they lose all of that agency via surgical means and then have to rediscover their power, and and it comes through violence. Yeah, I never really would have made that connection, but I think both films play with that power dynamic of suddenly being flipped 
However, they're kind of the opposites of one another, whereas Mary, the protagonist, is kind of lacking power and then overtakes and becomes like the aggressor, um, the one that is uh, performing the surgery at the table with, you know, people at her, you know, are at her whim, right? Mm-hmm. They're, yeah. they're her subject beck and call. to, yeah, or, and people are like subject to her knife, right? Like they're they're putting their their life <laughs> yes. in her hands effectively <laughs> whereas in hostel it's kind of the opposite scenario right where you, as as joe said you have these protagonists that i guess you could call them protagonists mm. <laughs> 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 the focus of the powerful. film <laughs> yes the focus of the film and then their power dynamic is reversed <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah yeah which i could see why particularly people who are attracted to feminist horror would look at this and be like, okay, so if I don't mind rape revenge films, then I can see this and I can watch this woman rediscover or reclaim her agency and her power. And she's doing it in, you know, the medical field, which is something that is traditionally dominated by men. And all the surgeons that we see in this film are douchebag men yeah. who are just absolutely <laughs> yeah. the worst. So I, I do understand why people would come to American Mary and see that kind of like wish fulfillment, like feminist agenda fantasy, like, yeah, look at her. She fucking does it. And then of course she, you know, yeah. slides a little too far. Yeah. I, I feel like imagine this film without the rape in it. I don't mm. think it was necessary. And that's my biggest issue with this film is that if you remove that and instead just have her discovering her own power and be like, wait, I'm really fucking good at this. And use it as a way she can get back at her professor who's a jerk to her and tells her she has to, you know, she always has to be paying attention 100% and can't be distracted by phone calls in class, Mm -hmm. whatever. She can quit med school because she's like, you know what? I found another path. I don't need to follow this traditionally masculine path or whatever. Maybe that's a weird way to describe college, but... (laughs) Well, but I... I think the for me it is this because you know they said oh like a lot of this is based on their experiences in Hollywood with mm-hmm. a lot of men presenting like oh we're good but they're actually sleaze balls sure but we're switching into a different industry here which is the medical field I do get what you're saying I do think that is a more interesting film because yeah that's that's more of a character study but I also admire the fact and maybe that's the wrong word to use that this is a rape revenge film directed by women which is not something we get. Often and, and certainly not in 2012, 2013. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. So I think that's something that's that's notable about the film. And me personally, I'm never a big fan. And I, this always comes up with, with films that have sexual assault because I know it's always the word. But like, I'm never a big fan of using the word necessary when it comes to something like that. Because, like, well, they put this in the movie for some reason. But I, I do get what you're saying, Becky, where it's like, oh, but this other avenue that they don't explore really at all would have made for a more interesting film personally for me. Yeah, I, and I, I get that. I think I'm torn a little bit after hearing what you just said, Trace, and that, yeah, if this is their story, like, who are we to say, don't don't tell your story? And it's one thing to have men write and direct movies about women getting raped. It's like, that just now should not really happen anymore. It's like, we've had enough. We've had enough men <laughs> telling stories about women getting raped. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, if women want to tell their own stories, like, who are we to say? That's not necessary, right? That's, like, fuck that. That's not I mean, right. I, I, I'm not but, calling you, because that, that, that's something that does happen with, a, again, specifically films with a sexual assault in it. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and I get 
the desire to not want to see it to, or to not want to have it, like to watch a movie with it in it. But yeah, it's just a thing where it's like, oh, like depending on, I mean, it's case by case, I guess. But Yeah. And we don't really know the motivations right behind why it was included. But I do as a viewer also, and as, as a woman get kind of tired of narratives where it feels like a woman needs to go through something horribly traumatic like a rape in order to become powerful yeah yeah, and that i think is a narrative i'd like to see adjusted (laughs) and changed a bit more like with with more and more genre films being released by women Mm -hmm. Uh, because i don't think we always need like it's a formula that's why i said it feels like a student film because how many times have we seen this story yes it is crafted by women but it's the template to something like i spit on your grave day of the woman right where it's like Oh, female empowerment story. Uh, they get raped and then suddenly they're this powerful woman. Yeah, it's it's almost like rape as a baptism of sorts. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, I get what you're saying. I get and what that's you're saying. my issue. And it feels remarkable. In this film in particular, it stands out to me. Okay. Because it does feel like two movies, right? The Like the after the rape and before the rape. Yeah. Are very distinctive. And her transition and change is so sudden and dramatic immediately following the rape let, okay, so let's put a pin in that because we can let, let's let's move on and then we'll, we'll we'll move on once we get to the rape part right okay so she does get a quick threatening call from dr grant because well all of this uh, crime boss stuff has been going down she has not been going to school and he does the same push and pull thing where he's like oh it's really important that you come but also like don't fucking miss class and make me look like an idiot so personal house call from your teacher a college professor i know what? yeah there there's a piece of fiction uh sorry faculty members do not have time to be individually calling students maybe an email hey expected to see you in class are you okay I think the idea here is that he's targeting her specifically. But again, yeah. I'm just like, what? <laughs> mm-hmm. So she goes to this vet clinic because this is where Beatrice has said, you know, we can do this surgery. It's after hours. I've got access to it. It is being... <laughs> <laughs> I love this character. Uh, there is a mouthy teenager named Tessa who works at the vet clinic during the day that gives them access. She's played by Julia Maxwell. And I love that Beatrice's rejoinder with all of the sullen child antics that Tessa is giving off. She Beatrice goes, if you're not nice to our friend, it's not going to snow for a very long time. <laughs> That's a Coke reference for those who didn't I, I, know. I, 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 yes. I, I, I got it. <laughs> I meant for our like 17 year old listeners who should really not be listening. (laughs) Yeah, don't do that. Uh, But no, she shouldn't be a cunt though. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So this is when we are introduced to Ruby Real Girl, who is played by Paula Lindbergh. And if you had difficulty adjusting to Beatrice, Ruby is a living doll. I thought you were going to say nightmare, but. No, because I. I I'm sort of in the same boat as you two, where I can't take my eyes off of the body mods of these women. And I'll be honest, if I saw these people in real life, I would probably stare and maybe be aghast. And I appreciate the film for making me confront that because Mm -hmm. it's sort of a safe space to be like, well, what's wrong with this? It's just that they don't look like everybody else. I I will tell you my issue with this character. And uh, it it mainly comes from the fact that, okay... Her husband, 
mm-hmm. is not okay with certain modifications she does to her, which of course plays a very big part in the climax of the film. Mm-hmm. I feel like if the Soskas are trying to destigmatize, you know, body mod culture, blah, blah, blah. I feel like that's also an important, it, it, it's to me the same thing as like, oh, if you're in an open relationship, hey, we have to have these conversations about things. So we're kept in the open and not secretly going to mod our bodies and hide it from our partner for X amount of time. Like to me, this, this is a very like surface level, like, oh, like here's a relationship. And of course the guy's going to, you know, kill our protagonist later, but I don't know. It just, it, it feels so tacked on almost. Okay, I'm gonna push back on that slightly, because what you're advocating for is that this woman doesn't have her own agency over her body. Like, even if she is married to this guy, even if he is just her boyfriend, like, I appreciate what you're saying is like, they should have an open communication. That's what couples Mm. should be doing. But at the same time, her autonomy over what she does with her body shouldn't be dictated by anybody else. So if she does this... Yeah, she should be fine. And I think the Soskas are clearly saying, like, even when women can take the power, like they they can take the $10,000, do the body mod, recover, be fine. They're still at risk of domestic violence from partners like it, it doesn't it doesn't safeguard them. Okay, so let me try to let me try to explain this. So I, I yeah, she has the right to do whatever she wants to her body. However, I also think though that if you're in a relationship and like clearly this this is not a surprise to her that he didn't like want her to do this. I don't know because he's with her and she would have had all the body modification procedures before this. So clearly he was with her and fine with it until mm-hmm. she takes out her nipples and removes her labia right but and i'm not saying that she doesn't have the right to do this but i'm saying it it, i feel like it's a disservice to the character to have her again in a relationship where presumably like this was a line too far for him to sneak out and do it on the down low to hide it from him just so she could do it herself it to me is maybe not the equivalent but it's similar to like breaking a rule that you have with your spouse in an open relationship where it's like oh we only do this this and this and you go out and do something else instead i'm not saying that she doesn't have the right to do this but i'm saying i would have liked to have seen like i mean the the conversations this relationship if they really wanted to destigmatize this community hmm. to put a light on that more, to focus on that more. And I get that that's not the movie we're watching because Mary is the protagonist, but it does, yeah. it, it feels very like. Well, it introduces a generic thriller element, right? Like, oh, here's a character we've never really met, but he shows up. Oh, he's a rage monster. And now Mary's going to die. Yeah. I mean, I read it too as it's it's just another example of a man trying to control another woman yes. and the focus is on her body. Mm-hmm. As like almost every male character in this film has that same kind of conceit about right. them. So I think it's fitting into the overall narrative in that sense. But I think, you know, Trace, I understand and appreciate what you're saying, but I think the problem here is this clearly was not a healthy relationship right mm-hmm. and she was afraid probably to tell him and maybe hoping that if she just did it it would all be okay that right. obviously she was not expecting to be attacked yeah. as a result of her choice for her body mm-hmm. and i think it would be nice if this film did make more efforts towards destigmatizing um the body mod community if that was its intent but it's 
Clearly not, because I think if anything, it sort of almost fetishizes. <laughs> well, and therein lies the problem, Becky, because the Soskas are on the record as being like, oh, yeah, we really wanted to do our best to show these these people as normal and beautiful, and they were looking to actively destigmatize. But it doesn't feel like that. No, and we're in agreement with you. Trace and I feel the exact same way. We're like, uh, it feels like, sure, you cast a bunch of real life body mod community members, and then you fetishize them. Well, and, and that's my thing. And so yeah, I, I, my my whole reason for bringing this up is based on those quotes from them. So uh, yeah, yeah, if you don't know that that quote from them, if you don't know that was their intent, and you're just watching this movie, then yeah, it doesn't really make a difference. So yes, mm. I'm sorry, I'm pulling in external information <laughs> to, to make my issue with this. <laughs> And I've, I've heard them say that. I think when I am questioning the intent is, is that really the intent or is that something you've said later? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> you know, like, I think filmmakers often do that. Like, they find their intentions as the film is coming out and they right. have to go create sound bites. And right. everyone does this. So it's not just not picking on them for that in particular. Yeah. But I think it could have been like, oh, this community is really fascinating and it would make kind of a cool concept for a movie and really pull people in. Because it doesn't read that way when you watch the film. Exactly. No. Exactly. And I think there's, I mean, I'm potentially going to get myself into hot water now here. But one of the things I notice on this rewatch is that there's also an unusual fetishization. Whew. Of Catherine Isabel's Mary, because in this scene where she's doing the surgery, there's this slow pan of her high heeled shoes up to her like perfectly formed calves. And then we cut back to a kind of medium long shot. And it's her looking like she could be eating Ruby real girl out, but she's actually doing the surgery on her labia. And I'm just like, in a way, this is kind of a sex scene, but also it's very much glamorizing Mary. Like, I'm sorry, who the fuck wears high heels to what's probably a multi-hour oh. surgery? <laughs> and then I'm like, wait, oh, what am I doing? I view that as the comedy. I, I, to me, that was a part of the comedy. Like, it's just ridiculous. Hmm. I don't know that I did. I think it was more an aesthetic choice than anything because she has this whole look about her. Mm-hmm. The Definitely. Film. Like, she always, like, her wardrobe, I guess we can talk about that, is mm-hmm. actually pretty, it's pretty incredible in it. Like, I I want a lot of her coats yes. and everything she's wearing. Like, she's the style icon in this <laughs> movie, effectively. <laughs> so I think it was maybe more that, like, that was, like, the look they were going for but i agree that it does like she is so sexualized in this film yeah almost every scene because one she's always wearing heels regardless of whether or not they're a practical choice Mm -hmm. the very long sequences of billy fantasizing about her just seem like they go on for so long i'm like is this filler oh my god it's i know who killed me levels of length yeah but I, i don't know i mean do you think then they're trying to subvert the male gaze by doing the male gaze or do you think they're just like, no, 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 we're just going to sexualize her because she's hot? I don't know. Because, like, the first time I saw this, I, I thought the exact same thing that Becky was saying. Like, oh, wow, she's a style icon. She's got all these great outfits. And then we get to the rape, and I'm like, wait, are we doing a weird she's asking for it? Or, like, she dared to wear pumps, and then this happened to her? Because that's messed up. See, I know. I think we are getting that. But it's from – because, again, the whole thing is, like, the D- Dr. Alan Grant thinks <laughs> – 
<laughs> thinks that she is hooking yes. because she's coming to money. So mm-hmm. th- there is a, yeah. oh, she's asking for it. And yeah, she is She is sexy. But I don't think it's the film saying that. It's very much a, hey, y'all, the mm-hmm. mi- because this woman, this Mary, has the right to dress like she wants. She has the right to wear high heels when she's doing surgery. Obviously. And she's making her money yeah. however she can. The men just assume that she is resorting to sex to sex work. Yeah. And so that th- that works for me. And I think too about um like some of the criticisms around like Wonder Woman when that came out mm-hmm. people were saying, "Well, you know it's a superhero movie, it's wish fulfillment. She can look hot and kick ass at the same time." And I think I would probably read this film similarly where it's making like she looks fantastic. Yeah. All the time in the film and I think it's saying you know what, she can be hot, and she can be in control, and she can, fuck, she's awesome, she can wear heels and do a surgery for 10 hours and not have blisters on her feet, awesome, good for her, but I do feel like some choices did seem to sexualize her, but I almost felt like it was filler, and like done to be to create just more content that might be interesting. (laughs) To pad the runtime. Yeah, a little... feel the movie does feel a little bloated at times and aimless yeah. and I, I don't know or maybe they just were enamored by her I don't know, like, possible Pop- right like i like i said it feels like aesthetic choices right or just like this is beautiful to look at so let's put it on the screen because mm-hmm. the film is pretty beautifully shot of you know especially compared to all their other films so <laughs> <laughs> but no it looks good the the set design is good the well, mostly, you know, like the budget showing in some places. Right, yeah. But it's it's rich to look at, and her wardrobe is rich to look at. Yes. And, like, she herself is beautiful and engaging. Yeah. Yeah, you know what? The the more that we're kind of talking about this, the more I, I, I'm coming around to your sides, because... I think initially I was already put off. Like I was worried that that was the messaging and trace. I can see that. Yes. From a male, from the male characters in the film's perspective, that's absolutely what's happening. Mm. And then I think from the audience perspective, it's very much a look at this woman. She's so fucking badass. She can do this surgery in heels, as you said, Becky. And then she, yeah, sort of gets kind of cut down because of this. Like she's so fucking good. And then look at what these men do to her. Because I think I think you can read it as uh, maybe like they're turning the 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 gaze around to us, where it's like, oh, you're saying, oh, why is she wearing heels doing the surgery? Like, what's the problem with that? If she wants to wear fucking heels, let her wear heels. And then you have the men like essentially do the same thing to her, and it's like, oh, whoops, am I being, am I having the same mindset as these shitty ass male characters? That that's kind of what I think maybe the intent was behind some of this. So what you're saying is I'm Dr. Alan Grant and I'm a shithead right now. Yeah, I mean, it's like, fun. it's like, it, yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> well, and I think it goes back to something you were saying earlier. I think Trace brought this up of just because I look a certain way doesn't mean I can't do a certain thing. Right. Right. In your head, when you imagine a doctor, what do they look like? Probably yeah. like an older man in glasses. Right. You know, with a white lab coat. And I think this whole film is right. It's about manipulating images and and subverting our expectations about presentation. Yes, absolutely. Hence the interest in not just body modifications, but yeah, the the way that people look and act. Yeah. Okay, so let me let me let me speed us along here. So basically, yeah, she does the surgery, she removes Ruby Real Girl's nipple, she closes up her vagina for I'm the sorry, most- this is you speeding it up. This is the beat by beat. These are my notes, man. No. <laughs> she starts her residency, she's a star pupil, and then she gets invited to a party. Mm. And there you go. 
So I I do want to quickly give a shout out to this scene where she is repeatedly asked by Mm -hmm. Dr. Walsh, who is played by Clay St. Thomas. She's told twice to go out and deliver bad news. And she's presented as the star pupil because she can do it without being emotional or getting kind of sucked in. Like she goes out, she's like, oh, your husband had a heart attack, comes back in. Oh, your husband died. The end. And I think that this scene is really interesting because it both emphasizes Mary's obedience to the system. Like she does Mm -hmm. as she's told, she doesn't engage in, you know, like, oh, she doesn't become emotional like you might expect a woman to do. Mm -hmm. But it also reinforces the sterility and the lack of empathy in the medical profession, which is something that I think the film tries to move more towards when we see Mary joking with the people who are coming into her clinic and she's like deriving joy from their joy. So it's like what she transforms into is no less valuable in terms of the service she provides, but it actually allows her to be more of a human being. I also think that the way they choose to film this is very smart because we stay on the other side of the door as we hear the doctor talking to the other students. Mm-hmm. We don't get to like we see her talking to these people, but we don't hear anything. And I think right. that I mean again, that's the visual language of cinema. We're detached Ooh. emotionally. Ooh. Cinema. <laughs> Yeah, I just think like it this is a scene that could be considered filler like do we do we need to have this in here? Do we need to see her doing her residency or right. could she just come out and get the dress? But the answer is like, oh, the scene is important, but you need to be able to read it. Okay, so outside on her break, she does meet up with Ruby and she gets a gift. And this is observed by Dr. Walsh. And then when she comes inside, Grant and Walsh exchange this look between the two of them. And at this point, she is then invited to drinks with a group of surgeons. And this is the weirdest fucking party. Like, if that was not throwing off red flags from the moment mm-hmm. she walked in. Mm-hmm. Oh, just not saying it's her fault, obviously. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ignoring the red flags, but it was just like, holy fucking shit. Yeah. I, like, I just kept being like, party? stop taking drinks. These men are shady. Yes. Yeah, I mean, and the the first guy that talks to her, he's like, I'm a fucking motherfucker. But I also, like, I got a gay vibe off of him. Oh, he he was interesting. Yeah, that's Dr. Black played by Nelson Wong. I think he's the one who's almost most disarming because you think, oh, this person's acting very unusual. So then when we see, you know, regular interactions with the other doctors, mm-hmm. they seem calmer and saner. And you think, oh, maybe that guy's just had too much to drink. And then you realize that there's a fucking woman getting finger banged on the counter as a man masturbates yeah. and other men film it behind and It's Mary. like she doesn't even seem to notice that. Or like when she even walks in, you notice there's clearly someone that is dressed like a, the women are sex, a sex worker. Yes. It, it looks pretty obvious in the background, but she doesn't really see it. No. And it's just interesting. She never picks up on all these. And I think she's just kind of overwhelmed by the whole scene. And you know, mm-hmm. these men are in positions of power over her and she wants to impress them for her career. But one thing about Dr. Black, I guess, I'm wondering if you picked up on this too. In the very beginning of the film, someone, they referenced that the other doctor that was supposed to perform to help the guy that Mary ends up helping. They say black. Yes, We can't get a hold of black. And I think it's, I wonder if it's him. 
I'm willing to bet it is. Yeah, because oh I, I yeah. had that in my notes too. And then I was like, who is black? I don't know what this refers to. So I took it out. Yeah, so I think he was the doctor doing the surgeries, which explains like he's just an all around shady motherfucker. Mm-hmm. He is a motherfucker. He introduced himself accurately. I he's guess. talking like Lorelai Gilmore, like he just did five lines of coke off of the sex worker's <laughs> belly. I mean, probably did. Yes, correct. Yeah. Okay, so we're at the rate. I know we've talked about it, but is there anything else you want to talk about how, how this scene is filmed shot like does does it ring gratuitous to you it does to me it goes on for far longer than i remembered and i found the choking more upsetting this time around yeah i i think all rape scenes feel like they go on too long because they're meant to make you uncomfortable yeah i i didn't feel in terms of the litany of rape scenes i've seen in films (laughs) that it didn't stand out to me as one that was like overly gratuitous i I think it's it's on par with everything else we've seen. Hurrah! Yeah, we don't we don't get any new see any nudity in it or anything yeah. like that. So it doesn't. We stay on her face too. We do we do like we the camera is constantly on her face and yeah. be it if she's being choked or if his fingers are down her throat. Oh yeah. God, it's my least favorite. This is the thing that I've discovered. Twenty twenty two has told me that I really dislike seeing people's fingers go into other people's mouths. It's. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Another MFA comparison there. There's a hole and she like creates that artwork with fingers in her mouth. They're going in the mouth. Yeah, if you is, haven't seen the film. MFA is so but. good. <laughs> well, it's a way of silencing someone, right? Like that's where yes. people can speak or scream or cry for help. And it's like, nope, we've mm-hmm. got something lodged in there. So he's he's neutralizing her ability to use her voice and be an agent. Ooh, yes. I like that. I like that. I mean, sorry, I don't like that, but I like that. <laughs> It was an excellent and articulate analysis. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So what I find really creepy and insidious is that when she wakes up the next day, like the color scheme has changed. It is now the cold kind of harsh blue lighting. And he is in bed asleep next to her. Yeah. And that is fucking gross. confidence of a man to rape a woman and then not even... It, like he has no no shame. concept that he's gonna get caught. Mm-mm. Let's right? rem- like, but let's let's remember he thinks she's a sex worker. But she's still like no 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 no, no. Uh, sorry sorry <laughs> yeah from I'm his not perspective excu- I'm not excusing yeah. it saying oh she's yeah. a sex worker it's fine no yeah from his perspective is that she's a sex worker she's paid to do this it's fine now granted though he doesn't yeah. leave her any money no. but, <laughs> but um well that's that is clearly what, how much he values women and their company yeah. like in bed right and i think that could be read as a comment on how yeah and how men view sex workers they mm-hmm. are less than sure. they don't deserve humanity because they are less than human yeah that is what and so I, again the film isn't really doing the extra work to have that conversation but you can 100 percent pick it's that there. up from this yeah yeah yeah, yeah definitely So one of the interesting things, I remembered her breaking or breaking down in the elevator ride or when she gets home, and she doesn't cry. So Mary doesn't cry in this. Well, we see it. We see a couple tears come out of her eyes as she's in the bed. But then she goes back to her flat and she just sweeps the textbooks off the table. I guess that's the proof that she has dropped out of med school. Yeah. She just calls up Billy says do you want to make five grand and then it's like we are into this like we are kidnapping this dude and we are going for it 
I think, I think, so here's the thing. So on one level, I'm like, oh, that's actually kind of cool because I would expect the revenge part of this rape revenge to come at the climax of the third act, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Not the next scene of the movie. So on first, immediately I'm like, oh, that's subverting my expectations. But unfortunately, Mm -hmm. as you said earlier, Becky, like, yeah, we don't get to see her process this, which not saying she has to, because for some people like who who are, um, who experience trauma, they don't. Differently. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, narratively, it's just like, it's so fast and there's no time for us as an audience to breathe or go through this. So yeah, I could take the first and second half of this movie being so different if the transition between them, meaning from the rape scene to what what, what she when she does this to Grant, if it was a bit more lengthy. <laughs> like, if you had more time. Know. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's no time devoted to this. Yeah, and I think even the way that scene is shot when she comes back into her apartment and knocks the books over, it doesn't really even show her face. Like, she approaches the camera mm-hmm. very slowly, and she's, I think, even out of focus. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then it shows her hands sweeping them off, and it doesn't even show her face. No. So it's like she has been so dehumanized. Yeah. And from that moment on, I feel like she is a very, she's a very different person. And obviously that was... It's well, intentional. I'm assuming it was yeah. intentional yeah. Yeah. to show the impact of the rape, but it also is very difficult as a viewer to process because you've really come to like this character. Mm-hmm. And I feel like she becomes pretty unlikable after that point because she becomes very clinical, very cold. Like her sense of a lot of the life is is drawn Yes. You know, is, is diminished, which, you know, would make sense yeah. <laughs> with what happened to her. So this is fascinating because I 100% understand why you're both responding this way. And I don't have this issue at all. I actually think that the film is moving at just the right pace. Like, I appreciate that we're not spending that time because to me, what how she responds and how she becomes more clinical and all that stuff like that yeah. to me is as telling as if we had have seen her trying to process that Mm -hmm. so this is actually all still really working for me but i'm fascinated that this is kind of where it starts to lose the two of you i know so i don't think it's something where in the moment when i'm watching it i'm like oh this is a problem i think it's when i look back on the film as a whole when i'm like oh like Hmm. what could have made the second half work better for me is something with spending more time in this middle section okay I can see it. So Mary has basically asked that Dr. Grant be delivered to her apartment. And he has been beaten up. He is hogtied. Like he is basically incapacitated, but he is conscious and aware. She starts to inject him with needles. And she starts to go through this litany of things that she's going to prepare. So we cut over the part where she looks at the real life woman's uh, website. So she has a sense of like, she went down the the body mod kind of rabbit hole and saw all these different things. So she lists the procedure she's going to do on him. And these include tongue splitting, 3D implants, teeth filing, genital modification, and voluntary amputation. And it should be noted that uh, I never really caught this, but his mouth is pried open, like it's held open. And I didn't know what it was. Like, I just thought it was some kind of medical thing. And Anya Stanley uh, identifies this. This is a vaginal spreader that she is using to keep his mouth open. So it is the opposite of his rape that she is doing. She's keeping his mouth wide open. Okay, okay. 
That's amazing. I didn't know that. I, I like that. But so here's the thing, right? So in a lot of rape revenge films, you know, we have to endure the rape because we're getting to the, it has to justify the revenge. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's the general idea there. Sure. Do y'all find the rape scene more graphic than the revenge in this movie? Because and I, I think, I think it's a budget thing. Like we don't have the money to show her do all these mm-hmm. modifications on him. Yeah. We just get the aftermath. Well, and, and that again, I still like this movie, but I can see how that would be an issue for someone where it's like, why am I enduring the 60 second long rape scene when the revenge doesn't like match what what has come before, if that makes any sense? I never had that thought as I watched the film, because I think what she lists out and just yeah. <laughs> imagining myself being in that position for like 14 hours of surgery Mm -hmm. with the spreader. And he has like a general anesthetic. Like he is, he is going to feel all of this. Exactly. And know that it's happening. Mm -hmm. No, I know. But again, though, then on the flip side though, you could have a rape scene that's like, Oh, like two seconds, but we know she was raped, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I was thinking there, there were other ways that they could have done it where she wasn't even raped. Like we could have done a, a rage carry two kind of slut shamey thing where she just gets mm-hmm. outed at the hospital and she has to leave the medical school in disgrace. But I don't think it would make sense why she would go to these extreme lengths. Like you would have to have her engage with the body mod community in a different way. For me, I kind of like this. So I actually found myself really comparing this to the girl with the dragon tattoo. Yeah. Because we get a rape and then we get like a beat and then we get another rape, but it's the reverse. But it's also not the focus of the film. That is true. But that's part of the reason why I had so much issues with that film. Oh, no, but I mean, I, I mean, in here, too, I don't think like, I think the rape revenge is a small portion of the film. Well, I think it's yeah, and it sounds shitty, but it's basically the inciting incident for who she becomes in the back half of the film, yeah. which I think is a testament right. to Becky, your issue where it's yeah. like, oh, it's just rape to make her become a different person. Cool. Right. It's a plot. Yeah, it's, it's a, a plot you point. Know, a step in the plot. And instead of the central mm-hmm. theme. But I do love all of this shit with Dr. Grant, like the reveal of him in the cold storage warehouse and the knowledge that (laughs) she has been perfecting her techniques by just continuing to work on him. That is so fucked up. And I really like it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. It's it's so morbid and such a perfect way to treat a rapist motherfucker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, this is when the flesh squelches were really uh, pinging on my subtitles. <laughs> there we go. There we go. So I did want to take a quick pause, if you will indulge me for like two minutes. Yeah. Just because I think when we go through the litany of things, I I feel like as regular folks, we might listen to it and be like, holy fuck, she's really torturing this guy. This is horrible. And I just wanted to quickly address the mo- the body modification part of this film. So I, I did a little bit of searching and I can no longer travel internationally because I'm back on a bunch of banned lists. So uh, Wikipedia and Bradley University uh, had a, some illuminating pieces to inform me about this. And I wanted to point out, ironically, that Bradley University had this section listed under something called the Body Project, and then the next kind of uh, header that it was falling under was Disability, Illness, and Non-Normative Bodies, and then under that was Body Modification and Body Image. So I thought that that was mildly problematic, but... So body modification occurs around the globe today in various forms and for many reasons, including aesthetics, body art, and self-expression. I feel like we've talked a little bit about that already. 
There's also sexual enhancement. So you can do modifications to like basically your your genitals and other sexual anatomy in order to augment or increase your pleasure. You can do it as a rite of passage. There's religious beliefs and or to display group membership or affiliation. And in case you're like, oh, well, that's a, this is still really fucked up and like it's really counterculture kind of goth weird vibes. Examples of body modification from around the world include nose piercings associated with Hinduism, neck elongation in Thailand and Africa, henna tattooing in Southeast Asia and the Middle East, tooth filing in Bali, lip piercing and earlobes stretching in Africa, and female and male circumcision in many areas of the world. So like, uh, I would argue female circumcision is tantamount to torture, and it's like basically a human rights violation. But like, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking like, oh, male circumcision, if you think about a body modification, Uh there's a lot of people who suddenly realize you are part of the body mod community. I mean, that's, I think it's absolutely valid. And you know, it's obviously there are different levels of extremes when it comes to that. Although I say that and I'm like, oh, like just snipping off a piece of your baby's penis skin. Like, there you go. Mm-hmm. But yeah. And even like tattooing and like mm-hmm. people who get like septum piercings and mm-hmm. other fun things like that, right? Like, well, and members of the tattoo community, though, I mean, again, I realize, again, on a scale of intensity, like tattooing, it may not be as quote unquote, intense as you know the like the thing that goes in your lip Mm -hmm. but if you're covered head to toe in tattoos there are like it's hard to get a job right like there's already Mm -hmm. so even though tattoos may be seen as like you know not as bad there's still discrimination against people with tattoos because it's like like, yeah Mm -hmm. i was trying to make a point i don't know why i was just like (laughs) (laughs) well yeah i mean we all alter our physical appearance for some reason, yes. right? Like even at our haircuts, mm-hmm. come to, you know, makeup, all of that. It's it's a form of self-expression. They're just varying degrees of permanence or kind of intensity. Yeah, behind them on on the softer side of the list in my research, like they listed a uh, body hair removal. So like if women go and get like bikini waxes or they get like laser hair removal on their underarms, it's like oh okay yeah I guess we could consider that part of it. I mean let's not limit it to women because I know we've got some gay men out here who like to oh, get sure. their assholes waxed. No no gender discrimination. I'm <laughs> I guess I'm just thinking like oh I've I've waxed Brad's back before. <laughs> I've narrowed an ex-boyfriend's back before. (laughs) Who hasn't? Yeah. I just think it's funny, right? Like, because we talked earlier about what we would respond if we saw, you know, Ruby on the street. And I think that is taken to an extreme level. But to a certain extent, we are all guilty of doing gentle body modifications all the way up to the more extreme. For sure. Yeah, maybe maybe we should all revisit Ghosts of Mars and have a a new, fresh take on that. I already have my nap today. (laughs) I do love how that film is like very female centric, though. Yes. Okay, so let's move into the back half of the film. We cut to her absolutely thriving practice. And Mary is now kind of like, she's almost gatekeepery. Like she's very interested in doing different types of procedures. But when this guy's like, Oh, I don't know, maybe this type of piercing. She's like, get the fuck out. Get the fuck out. And that, that part was so, like, where she starts not feeling like a real human anymore, and <laughs> just like, this this caricature almost. Yeah. Definitely of her former self, right? 
Yes. But it's funny because I feel like she's having also more genuine human interactions with people. Like, that felt very much like, oh, you come into the tattoo parlor and you tell the tattooist, oh, I don't really know what I want. And they're just like, well, get the fuck out. You're wasting my time. It's interesting you say more genuine reactions. I feel like, though, every time she talks to her other customers, Mm -hmm. she almost says it like it's like she's reciting something like, Allow me to do something that makes you feel like you're more genuine self. Mm, it's, it's almost it's like an infomercial. Yeah. I don't feel like she's genuine about it. Well, because she was raped and she has no emotions. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's my problem. And yes, it might. it's it's intentional and yep. it is a legitimate reaction that she is closing down. Mm-hmm. She's turning off a lot of emotions so that maybe she doesn't have to process the pain. Right. Mm-hmm. But it also feels very much like, oh, woman is raped. Now she becomes femme fatale (laughs) that is heartless. Yeah, it doesn't help, too, that we also get the introduction of Detective Doler, who is played by John Emmett Tracy, and all of her reactions to him and him just generally as a character. He's so stilted and this isn't really bringing anything new or exciting. And she is very like... Oh, I see police detective. I shut down. I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, Dr. Grant. Oh, I'm so sad. Honestly, we can literally go the rest of this plot without even mentioning this character again until he, unless we want to talk about the, you know, where he confronts her about being a victim. Yes, I do want to talk about that. But you're right. We can basically eliminate the fact like, oh, okay, they're they're sort of on to this mm-hmm. ring of nasty surgeons and it becomes a plot point. Well, and honestly, we can even skip over the Soska's cameo, which is not like, okay, <laughs> like, it, it, it's just them doing a surgery. Uh, right. And but it's also one of the elements where I feel like I go back to the whole like, oh, this is highlighting this community and destigmatizing it. Mm-hmm. It's like, what happens? They walk into this room and randomly start making out with one of the employees yeah. and then like bite her tongue or do something you know with because they have um you know the teeth filed right uh it's like oh yes of course that's just something these body mod people will randomly do it to me it makes it like more demonizes them and ostracizes them i know that's one example right of characters but it's well, it's so bizarre because it's the characters that they have chosen to play. And again, they're on right. they're on record in interviews as saying, this is the public perception that people have of us. So we wanted to kind of poke fun at it. And I'm like, but you're poking fun at it by doing exactly what people think of you. Like, that's not subversive. That's actually just kind of mm-hmm. reinforcing it. And you're right. Like, it might be be different if it was somebody other than them but it feels like oh here's the directors making their director cameo and they're giving in to all of these negative perceptions that people like laymen would have of this community and you're like okay what are we doing playing devil's advocate unless they're saying yeah sure this is what you think but this is normal for us like this is accepted behavior <laughs> i don't know just uh, assaulting I know. someone i just yeah. think it's like no reason <laughs> even the fact that like oh they're from germany and it's very much like okay oh well god, what do we associate so germany bad. with oh my god how many times have i said that on this podcast but <laughs> it, it's very much like oh germany like that's a kinky foreign place and then they come in with their bad german accents and they're like yeah cutting up women's lips and being incestuous and 
And I think it makes it worse. If they want to play with the perception of themselves, that's one thing. I think that they can do that. But then they're also taking on the role of people in the body mod community at the same time while doing it, which makes it really questionable to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, unless, yeah, we don't know. Maybe they do have... You know, I mean, we just talked about body modifications running the gamut, um, like they probably have piercings or tattoos or something. Right. But it just feels like they're partaking in the fetishism and yes. a little bit of the demonification or like verminification of most of <laughs> Like they're othering. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I know I'm using a weird term that's usually were used in, in times of war. I but get what you're trying to say. <laughs> yeah. They're adding to the otherness. Yes. Right. About the community and rather than destigmatizing it so it's it doesn't feel like commentary on themselves it feels like commentary on the community mm. yeah and i think trace you kind of like latched onto something important where you said oh well we can just skip over all of this so this is actually the point in the film where i feel like it starts to go off the rails because i don't know what the messaging is so i watch this scene mm-hmm. and i think oh i thought we were trying to not do this with the body mod community mm-hmm. and then we have this surgery where she has to call in another doctor and it seems like he's a little shady like I always get a weird vibe from him during their scene but the surgery comes to nothing like it's an easy success and we move on from it and I start to feel like I don't understand what the point of some of the scenes are or what it's telling us about where Mary is at in her journey anymore Uh, random I can't believe we've made it this far into the episode and we haven't mentioned this but when we're talking about body modifications I mean there's a trans reading that you can have in this film so let's say like remove you know the uncanny appearances of them you know just say like this is like you know trans surgery okay how does the messaging read for you then right like do you find this offensive towards the trans community if that's what we're talking about here I guess I I wouldn't put a trans reading on here because we're not really seeing gender reassignment. Well, I guess uh, you're right. Not gender reassignment, but in terms of like, oh, like my outside matching how I how I feel on the inside, like learning to be closer to myself because I can't connect with other people. Well, sorry, that, sorry, that, that is said in this movie, but I'm not linking that to trans people. But um, I don't know, just that aspect of it. Not the literal like, oh, I'm, I'm g- reassigning my gender, but I am changing my outward appearance to match how I feel yeah. on the inside. Hmm. I didn't get that on my first viewing of the film, but on the second viewing now, I did have that same thought, though I don't think it at all was the intent no, in no, no, 2012. No. Uh, so it's probably just not an appropriate reading of, of the film, and it doesn't really dive deep enough into any anything of substance about those feelings. And it doesn't really explore gender in that way, mm-hmm. to, to Joe's point. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say it's offensive necessarily to the community because i just don't think it applies right but i think i could see someone taking that reading and say hey there's themes in there that i connect with yeah. right i think if the film was more interested in actually doing an interrogation or like an examination of the body mod community mm-hmm. then you could you could actually start to investigate that but the film doesn't at all seem interested in going there like i remember the first time i saw this i had difficulty identifying the gender of ruby real life and i wasn't sure if it was a male to female transformation and that was what we were kind of exploring because it's very much like oh i want to do a surgery on my sexual anatomy and i was like oh, okay well what's happening down there yeah but i think if the film had been made today there would certainly be more interest or maybe acknowledgement that that would be happening but again like that's a very different kind of surgery what ruby does is 
it that's where I get the conflation of like body mod and cosmetic surgery because it's mm. whereas like trans reassignment surgery is like life or death like it's right. medically diagnosed whereas the reason people have to come to Mary is because they often can't get approval to get these surgeries done by quote unquote real doctors. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. So I mean to like derail the conversation. No, I didn't mean to derail the conversation. I was just wondering if like I, I don't know if like a yeah, if a trans like viewer would watch this and like, I don't know, feel spoken to. I mean, I welcome any of our trans listeners to write in and be like, hey, were you seeing any of this reflecting back on you? So this is around the time where Mary's getting filthy fucking rich. So she moves out of her <laughs> old shit place and she moves into a barn warehouse. <laughs> don't know what this space is i kept waiting to see like a horse peek around a corner or something i think it's supposed to be like a cool industrial loft i think so with yeah uh, two stories but at the end whenever detective delore comes to like pay her a visit mm-hmm. she like closes the wall but like not all the way that's yes. hiding her surgeon's room mm-hmm. <laughs> and he doesn't look around and she doesn't close the storage unit mm-hmm. no <laughs> That when the the security guard or whatever comes in, I was like, "Wait, you are literally torturing a human being. Yes. You didn't close the door behind you." Yeah, which is basically where we're at. This is the reveal point where we get to see what what appears of Doctor Grant. He, yeah. In case people wanted to know, he's suspended from his back, which we talked about a little bit in our the cell episode. So there mm-hmm. is like a sexual element to some of that body mod. His mouth has been sewn shut. He has scarification on his forehead. So she has done the dragon tattoo move of tattooing his face. And then all four limbs have been amputated, which I'm like, oh, wow. And we just got that on Chucky last year. Boxing Helena. Mm-hmm. So this is very clearly torture, as you said, Becky. So this this is no longer... It's interesting, right, because this is also the only surgery that she does in the entire film without anyone's consent. So it she's really yeah. keeping it like the revenge is truly just on her rapist. Yeah. Well, except unintentional revenge on uh, the security oh God, guard. <laughs> no, D- Dr. Walsh, because Billy goes and beats his ass. Yeah. And she does, I presume, kill the security guard that. Yeah. It's more of a, it's not self-defense, it's self-preservation, <laughs> yes. I suppose, because she doesn't want to get caught. Yeah. And then there's that scene where she almost kills the new girl. Well, okay, so I'm, because that that is purely out of jealousy, mm-hmm. because she walked know, in on her so blowing. Weird. Yeah, the, the messaging is weird, right? Because I, 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 for me, I'm like, okay, so she's fucked in the head because she's processing trauma right mm-hmm. now. But at the same time, it's like, okay, like, you're making this kind of, like, ya-ya woman power movie, and then you have your protagonist almost kill a girl because she has petty jealousy over walking on her being forced into a blowjob. Instead of feeling empathy for this woman who was being forced into something that she was, like, in a very similar situation when she, who knows what would have happened in her job interview, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. had it not been interrupted. I mean, I think this is the evidence of what would have happened. Exactly. So... I was so confused and did not know how to read the intention yeah. of, of that at all. Like, I understand she's on a downward spiral mm-hmm. and descent at that point. I think that's what it's trying to communicate, that she's, like, mm-hmm. taking it too far. Yes. But it seems to be very motivated by jealousy, which, again, goes back to this whole 
why are they portraying Billy in this very mixed well, sort of light? But actually, now that I think about it, though, Billy feels this way about her because he didn't get that blowjob from her at the job interview. Yeah, that's yeah. That's okay. why I was saying like he wants to possess her, and she's this object that he can't have. Exactly. That he really wants. Yeah. So like, yeah. like if, if she had not had to do the uh, impromptu five thousand dollars surgery, we wouldn't have this issue because she would have gone down on him, and that would have been that. Yeah. Maybe she would have. Well, I mean, sorry. He he would have forced. He would tried have tried to force her to do it at least. Yeah. 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 Well, and I think that so for me, this is really where the film is kind of starting to spin out of control. Like, if you want to read it in a very shallow kind of surface level, what's happening is, yeah, she's out of control because she killed this dude and her life is now spiraling. And also we have Billy, whose life is similarly spiraling because he is so caught up in his obsession and they're now just making nothing but bad decisions. But honestly, I don't find any of this compelling. Like, I really check out of all of these scenes from the moment after she beats the security guard to death, I'm yeah. just like, what are we doing? I think it's because we don't really get a good look at her interior life. Whereas I feel like I know her again. And then going back to the first half, second half thing, the second half, I feel like I don't know who she is anymore. And mm-hmm. so I don't understand her motivations. Yeah. Which just is more frustrating to watch than it is compelling because we don't have any sense of like, was that out of jealousy? Is it because she's just angry and has this directionless rage uh is she wanting to feel powerful and that's the easiest way to to find that power in that moment like it i don't think get the impression that the saskas even knew what they were doing because it doesn't come through and i think sometimes when filmmakers are just kind of writing and adding things and they don't really have a clear intention. That's what you end up getting in an end result. Because you can always tell as a viewer when there's not clear and consistent intention behind what was being shot. Right. And, like, the actor doesn't know how to play it either, right? Like, we don't really get a lot from Isabel in that, like, Catherine Isabel in that scene. Well, because the movie is rushing to a climax. Well, it's also interesting, too, right? Because we started to get Billy's perspective. Like, we saw him fantasizing about her. We get to see scenes of him beating what we presume to be Dr. Walsh because he has gone missing. And it's like, wait, we have not been given any kind of interior insight into this character. Why are we doing this now? I thought that this was Mary's movie. Yeah, it does kind of come out of nowhere. And it feels like it's just done to service the plot of getting Mary deeper into trouble with the police, presumably, even though that doesn't really matter at the end. No, well, no, really. because, because what we have next is kind of his final scene with her. Yeah, so okay, let's briefly talk about this. We we joked about how she's very very bad at like closing doors and hiding her tracks, but when Dolor comes to visit her, she nearly poisons him and then changes her mind when she hears that he doesn't have her rape tape because of course mm-hmm. Billy is watching that and then I'm imagining his own perverse finale where she murders him. Okay, yeah. sure, whatever. The thing that I caught on this rewatch this time around is when Dollar leaves, he says, you know, I want to know you like he's very much meant to be a knight in shining armor, you know, he's one of the good ones. But as he's about to leave, they're in very close proximity to one another. And he it's a, a brief moment. But he clearly looks her up and down, like he looks at her chest, and he looks at her face. And then he's like, I'm just really worried about you and then leaves. And you're like, Oh, no, he's gross, too. Yeah, that's the thing. So, like, he's a knight, knight in shining armor, but he's just as bad as the rest of them. Yeah. But I do also think this is meant to be, like, the 
linchpin, I guess, or like the final stand for Mary. You know, she has an opportunity here right. to come clean and say, yes, I was involved. This is what happened. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't. And she doesn't. Yeah. Like it's her, it's her downfall of sorts. Well, yeah, because basically after this point, she gets punished, right? Like she, we have the whole scene where she, you know, threatens the other woman. And then Billy confides that Beatrice has quit the club and he proposes that they leave town. Who could care? Blah, blah, blah. Um, but while this has been happening, we've seen Ruby's boyfriend come home. And then as Mary is going back to her apartment, she gets phone calls that she ignores until it's too late. And it's from Beatrice that Ruby's husband is on the lookout for her. And then we get this final very hastily and not well shot physical encounter between Mary and Mr. Real Life. And <laughs> that's how he's credited. <laughs> Mr. Real Life. Mr. Real Life. We should all aspire to be a Mr. Real Life. Well, so I was... Okay, I I don't know if this would make, like... So the scene whenever Mr. Real Life comes home and, like, you know, we see him see Ruby's nippleless breasts for the first time. Mm -hmm. And her sewn-up labia, because that is kind of important. Yes, I almost... And maybe I'm wrong, but I almost feel like we could just cut that scene and have this be like, I don't know, like a surprise reveal at the end. Because I feel like with that scene, like, I think the intent is to like, oh, like, like it's foreshadowing because mm-hmm. he's going to go after Mary, blah, blah, blah. Which I get that's the point. But when that scene happens in the movie, when we see Mr. Real Life see Ruby like naked fully, it, it feels very out of place with the rest of like with whatever's going on. I don't even remember when it when happens. But it just, it's like, oh, we're there with this character we haven't seen in a long time. Okay, we're now back. And then, oops, he's going to come up in the last scene of the movie. Yep. Yeah. It's just bad writing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, that's that's my take on it. I mean. <laughs> What's frustrating because we, we've heard him name dropped. Like, we've been to Ruby's apartment previously, like, in the scenes before the soskas appear that's yes, where she goes photograph yeah but we're never cued that he is a potentially violent or jealous or vengeful man it's just like oh yeah this is a she has a sexual partner and this is where they live and it seems nice she makes dresses that's what we know so for him to suddenly be violent it's like oh okay well this is our introduction to the character physically it's a, a blink and you miss yeah. it you know, rage flashes across his face, and then all of a sudden, bam, he's attacking Mary in the climax. It's like, okay. Yeah, and not just a violent character to, you know, attack his partner, but then go after and kill two other people Mm -hmm. as well. Like, that's a pretty extreme reaction. (laughs) Yeah. Obviously, in a lot of ways. So it's like, it's the fact that it was not built up or foreshadowed in any sort of way. Mm -hmm. Just makes it feel like a cheat of an ending. Mm. And it almost feels like they did not know how to end this film. So this becomes the climax and Mary gets, to use your words, punished mm-hmm. and dies. Yeah. yeah. Spoiler alert. Yep. She dared to color outside the lines and therefore she's got to be murdered. Well, that's where, Becky, you saying, oh, the, we don't need the rape here because that muddies the message where it's like, oh, now she's being punished for being raped. Well, no, she's being punished because she has lost her sense of humanity. She's now willing to let other people die and or commit murder. Which she lost because she was raped. Yeah. And that's the problem that I really have with the end of this film 
what are we saying? What is the message? What yeah. is the takeaway? Because it's not about the body mod community. P.S. In case you didn't get that, literally the end scene is this fucking Detective Delore arriving on the scene, and we've got not one, but two police officers looking like they want to hurl as they're looking through Mary's workbooks of like her various surgeries. And yes, I get that they're of Dr. Grant, but it's also very much like... I mean, Mary has done some things, but it's all within the reasonable kind of limits of what people have asked consensually to be done to them. Well, we're also forgetting that the last we see of Beatrice is her beaten to a bloody pulp on the ground of her apartment. But she she mustered the strength Mm -hmm. (laughs) to call Mary. (laughs) Right. And she was here's the thing to the timeline. They said she was missing from work for days. Right. Mm -hmm. Billy's had said that. Mm-hmm. And then she calls her. So she'd been laying on the floor for days and then finally called her. I guess. I guess she recovered or, well enough to pick up a phone. It kidnapped and then beaten over several days. I don't know. I just found that, like, that's where it all feels very lazy. My God. Can I make end. a really insensitive and offensive joke? Yes, always. Yeah. Maybe it's because she didn't pay her phone bill and she needed to transfer that $364. Oh. <laughs> oh, that was not. I, th- I thought you were going to go way worse <laughs> than that. <laughs> no, I like Beatrice. I felt bad for her. I thought you were going to say she got booped on the nose or something. <laughs> do do be do. A little dead. too hard. <laughs> um. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I realize I have been like playing devil's advocate a lot, and like not not necessarily exciting with you, Becky, but like I, I, I get a lot of your complaints. I still do quite like this movie, and I actually find its muddled messaging kind of makes for a, for a more fascinating discussion. Maybe not a more successful film, but I, oh, yeah. I mean, again, I, I've liked picking this apart with y'all because it, uh-huh. it is messy. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I've met a lot of people that love, absolutely love this film and find a lot of meaning in it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I agree with you. That's that's the fun part. Like, divisive movies are the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you can have a discussion about it, and not everybody's going to take away the same message. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's, it's hard to write and make movies, and anything I've made I can pick apart and you know, talk shit about. So <laughs> I, and, but I do it in the sense that like, I know it's hard to make a movie and our message doesn't always come through clearly. I think the most important part is, uh, I know, and this is maybe even controversial to say, I think intent is really important as filmmakers. Right. And that mm. we're, we're, we're trying to be empathetic to people. We are, you know, trying to help other communities at least that's the way i like to look at what i do not everything is about that sometimes you're just making a movie for the hell of it and for the fun of it but i think that's why i think i find this film so frustrating is that it makes me question intent a lot Mm. and as we've been talking about and that's why i think i have the strong reaction to it and it's not necessarily on a personal level it's just more i question what it's trying to say and do and that is very problematic to me when you're taking communities that are stigmatized right. and you're dealing with subject matter like rape to make a film where you don't have a clear message is questionable. I mean, but we I, I get what you're saying about intent. And something that we do say is like author intent doesn't matter once it enters the, the consumer. But at mm-hmm. the same time, though, I mean, it doesn't matter because you shouldn't have to have you shouldn't have to know the intent to understand or to 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 put together a reading of a film. But that being said, once you know the intent, like, again, we're talking about how they wanted to destigmatize the body mod community. That does play a factor when you're analyzing the film because you're then watching it saying, okay, well, they're trying to do this, but 
Right. It's not succeeding for me. <laughs> yeah, and films have their own reading detached from the creators, right? Mm-hmm. They have their own reading and they can create their own meaning from the way they are consumed. So yeah, intent doesn't matter in that sense. The work can stand on its own. But yes, when it's unclear, you kind of have to look sometimes for intent yeah, to right. get a better reading. But I also think that there's still somewhat of an obligation as a as a hu- good human and a good creator to add something to the world mm-hmm. uh, with with your work. And there's the critical reading of it. And then there's like what you are choosing to do as an artist, how you are using your power to create content that people will consume. And if you're going to be diving into subjects that are complicated and tricky and and might be difficult for some people, I think you ought to, (laughs) as a respectable (laughs) artist, commit to a message or commit to a statement. Yeah, yeah. I think that was beautifully philosophical and i'm not going to try to follow it i'm going to suggest that we end it there (laughs) all right awesome well that is american at mary everyone before we tease what we are covering next week because if you listen to our screen four episode we will not be telling you in the episode what we're covering it's a guessing game Mm -hmm. becky first of all thank you for coming on to have this discussion because um i don't think Either one of us anticipated having this much to talk about with American Mary. <laughs> no, we went in being like, well, it's going to be a bit of a short episode. We'll have some interesting conversation about the body mod stuff. And then it's like, bam. Well, thank you for having me. I, I didn't expect such an engaging conversation either about a film that I was mm, less lukewarm about. <laughs> <laughs> Very tepid. <laughs> Becky, let our listeners know where they can find you on social media. Sure. Uh, at Becky M. Sayers on Twitter is probably the best place to find me. Mm-hmm. And you can also check out the Paper Street podcast at Paper Street podcast on Instagram. And I think it's at Paper Street Pictures on Twitter. Okay. Perfect. And that, that'll all be in the show notes, everyone. So we'll have those links for you ready. Well, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at Horror Queers and join our Facebook Horror Queers group to hang out with other listeners. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we have covered and head over to our YouTube channel where historically we have posted micro queers videos and Chucky coverage, but we're trying something a little different this year called Horror Queers Hangout, where... Once a month, we will have uh, a guest or two uh, in from the journalism industry or, well, whatever industry, mm-hmm. and have a fun, happy hour chatting horror. So give those a listen because we'll have a different topic every month. But this month's topic will, of course, be on none other than Scream. Yes. Of course. <laughs> what else? <laughs> and uh, if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. So go subscribe to hear the results of the 2021 Hereditaries, our horror version of the Oscars, as well as episodes on Scream, the new one, See For Me, and Last Night in Soho. And as for our audio commentary this month, it will be on last year's uh, sleeper hit, Psycho Goreman. Yay! Joe, what can we tell them about the film we're covering next week? <laughs> oh boy, yeah, so folks, we advance another year, so we're moving into 2013, and uh, all I can tell you is that it's going to be another strong feminist film, but this time we don't have a female filmmaker behind the lens, so I'm interested. This is a first-time watch for me, folks. I'm and intrigued. it is not a first-time watch for me. I really like this movie, and I'm going to say it falls into the underrated category, not underseen category, but we'll see. Okay, yeah, so if you want confirmation of what we're covering, keep an eye on the socials on Friday. We'll tell you what to watch. And... 
On that note, I think we can cross out American Mary. Indeed, and cross out horror queers. Horror queers.